Good morning, Cornerstone. Um, I'm Pastor Bill, and I also want to add to the welcome that we've already had. Welcome to those of you here in the auditorium. Welcome to those of you watching online, whether you're watching live right now or whether you're watching sometime later in the week. I haven't asked this question for a while, and it kind of popped in my head as Daddy was talking. How many of you are new to Cornerstone since last September? You're new this school year. Raise your hand just so I could little higher so I can see you this all right that's probably a quarter of us so welcome glad you guys are here if you're newer than that we are honored that you are here especially if this is your first week with us um, we we just sense that when people show up here that that it's our job to bless you in some way so last week I introduced Lent for us at Cornerstone. But Ash Wednesdays was actually last Wednesday. So this is the first formal week of Lent, even though it's our second sermon on Lent. And so as we begin Lent this year, could we just for a moment kind of try to honestly assess our spiritual lives? Maybe right now you're doing great. But maybe right now, has your Christian life become a little bit mundane? Do you sense maybe that your, your spiritual life lacks fervor? Over these last three years or two, three years of weirdness in the world and in our culture and in the church, have you gotten maybe a little bit off-center spiritually? I ask because as I approach Lent this year, that's a little bit of what I'm feeling, a little bit kind of dull, spiritually, perhaps. And I've talked with a number of you who have said that, that your Christian life right now is a little bit ho-hum. It's sort of meh. And you feel like maybe your connection with the church and with your community is sort of, yeah. Things aren't terrible. We didn't deconstruct away from Christianity. But things aren't great either. If this describes you even just a little bit right now, I have really good news for you. Lent is especially designed for Christians who have gotten a little bit bored or a little ho-hum in their spiritual lives. That's what Lent is all about. So this week I read a, a tiny book on Lent by Esau Macaulay, a professor at of New Testament at Wheaton College, and I appreciated his insights, and I want to read you um, a couple of his quotes, a little bit extended quotes, because I really appreciated the way that he set us up to, to approach Lent. He writes this, Lent is inescapably about repenting. Repentance is a chance to change, or a repentance is a change in direction. A spirit-empowered turning around a season dedicated to repentance and renewal should not lead us to despair. It should cause us to praise God for his grace. Central to Lent is the idea that we need this kind of renewal consistently through our lives. We do not receive God's grace only when we turn to him at the beginning of our spiritual journey. God's grace meets us again and again. A little bit further on, he continues... He says, we hope that as Christians, we mature and grow and become more like Christ. But the church in its wisdom 
assumes we will fail. The church presumes that life is long and zeal fades, not just for some of us, but for all of us. So the church has included within its life a season in which all of us can recapture our love for God and his kingdom and cast off those things that so easily entangle us. We should not see the season of Lent as a series of rules, but as a gift of the collective wisdom of the church universal. Lent is one of the many tools of discipleship pointing us towards a closer walk with Jesus. And then one more, because he says it again a little bit further on, a little bit differently. He says the glorious thing about all the prayers of Lent is that they presume a loss of zeal. Over time, we get comfortable in our sins. They become a part of who we are, a portion of the spiritual architecture of our lives. They are a limp we get used to walking with. Lent is a call to remember our first love, the pursuit of holiness that may have marked the first years of our journey with God. Sin must become repulsive again. We need new hearts set aflame with the love for God. So if you're feeling like you're kind of a little bit off-center in your spiritual life, whether it's been going on for a few weeks or a few months or a whole season of your life, the good news is Lent was made for us when we're here. And, um, and so today we're going to look at a parable that Jesus told on Tuesday of the first Holy Week. And as you know, Holy Week is a time of incredible um, turmoil and conflict on the first Holy Week. And Jesus knew at the end of the week that he was going to die. We actually know more about the first Holy Week than we know about any, any, any other week in ancient history. Because a third of the three, of the four Gospels, a third of the four Gospels is all about just that one week in ancient history. Day-by-day accounts and in large parts of it, hour-by-hour accounts of what happened throughout the week. So as we, ta- as we mentioned last week on Palm Sunday, we know that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and the people wanted to make him the king as they yelled Hosanna or say Hosanna to the king of the Jews. It was, it's been called a day of messianic acclaim. They just wanted him to be their king. Then on Monday, what we talked about last week, Jesus first, he first cursed the, f- the fruitless fig tree, and then he went into the temple and cleared the temple of everything that was getting in the way, every obstacle that was getting in the way of people getting to God. And so Monday of Holy Week has been called a day of messianic authority. And then after cleansing the temple on Monday, when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem on Tuesday, his antagonists were waiting for him. They were locked and loaded, and they were aiming for him. They were gunning for him. Tuesday's been called a day of messianic argument because his antagonists were trying to trip him up any way they could possibly trip him up so that they would have a good excuse to put him to death. It was on Tuesday of Holy Week that Jesus told the parable that we're going to look at today. In Matthew 21, 33 to 46, Jesus shares this parable. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. 
Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, Jesus says, after he tells the story, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a, wretch those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And so Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And then Matthew concludes, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So vineyards were just a central part of life in ancient Israel, still is a central part, a source of income, um, and really a source of life in the Middle East. They produced the cash crop of grapes that could be used for wine, grapes that could be preserved as raisins that were very nutritious, and they provided sweeteners for all of the diet um, in Israel. And planting a vineyard was just plain hard work. Best vineyards were put on the side of hills so that the, the plants could drape over and the fruit wouldn't touch the ground. So the first thing the landowner would have had to do is once he got the land, he would have had to terrace it which means removing the rocks and kind of building it up and building it up so that he could plant the vines. And then he had to, once he had a terrace, he would have to till the soil, which means he's digging, and the land in Israel is very, very rocky land. It means he's digging through all of those stones and rocks and turning the soil over. And then he would find, it would buy the plants and, and very young vines would be planted in the soil. But that's not all that this landowner did. Next, Jesus said, the landowner built a wall around the vineyard. The wall would keep out animals that would break the tender young vines, or animals that when they're trying to get to the fruit, they would break the vines. They would also keep out thieves, and they would protect the tenants. But even that wasn't all that this landowner did. As the plants were, were rooting, the landowner then next built a wine press. And this was a lot of work. It was a, a very large, solid stone that would be hewn out like a bowl, and there would be two of them. The top one, and it'd have to be big enough for, for like three or four or five men to be walking around. They'd put the grapes, and the guys would walk on it and squeeze out the juice. And so that would have to be cut out of a solid rock. 
And then there was a trough at the end of it where the juice would go down and there would be a second hewn bowl out of the rock that would collect the wine juice. But even that wasn't all that this landowner did. After he did all of that, he then built a watchtower. And the watchtower would be a place for, for the, the tenants to sleep during the harvest. It would be a place for them to get in out of the sun. And of course, it would be a way for them to see danger that is coming from afar. All of that, the landowner did. And only after he'd insured for all of their needs, only then did the landowner go for a long journey. What should have happened next did not happen next. The tenants should have set aside for the landowner the agreed upon rent. It would have been three years that they would have lived there before those vines would start producing a crop. They should have set aside that crop after those three years for the landowner. That was the deal that they made, that they would be, accept the goodness and the, the care of the landowner, but they would return fruit to him when the, when the harvest came in. So what happens is the harvest comes in, landlord sends his messengers, and as I read, you know that they treated the messengers of the landowner, they treated them ungratefully, refused to give fruit, they ridiculed them, they abused them, they murdered some of them, which led the landowner to send one last messenger. He had a son, a beloved son. Surely the landowner thought, they'll respect my son. They won't abuse my son. But as Jesus said in verses 38 and 39, when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, and here in Luke's gospel, the same account, in Luke's gospel it says, they talked it over. So they saw the, the son come, they talked it over, it was premeditated murder. They said, when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus foreshadowed his death three days later when the people of the landowner, the people of God, put the son to death. So Jesus tells a story and he says, you be the judge. What should happen next? You be the judge. What should the landlord do to these people who refuse to give him the fruit that he rightly deserves? The imagery of the, the parable is, is straight out of Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah 5, 1 through 3, we read this. We read, I will sing a song, or I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. And this line, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done? What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done. Jesus says, you be the judge. What should happen next? And then someone replies, well, he should, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of crops at harvest time. Somebody blurts it out. And when that was said, it dawned on the crowd 
wait, this is us. Because they knew the imagery from Isaiah for throughout the Old Testament, the owner of the vineyard was always God, and the people were the people of God. And the people, once they got blurted out, these wretches, they gasped. The reason we know that is because Luke's gospel reports, when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. God forbid. And then verse 43 is terrifying. Jesus, the cornerstone the builders rejected, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. That should strike terror in our hearts, that God would say that he will withdraw his blessings and take away the kingdom and give it to those who will produce fruit for him. In verses 45 and 46, that's when Matthew adds at the end, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables. They knew he was talking about him, them, and they looked for a way to arrest him. So we could look at Jesus through the lens of the crowd that gasped. We, we could try to see how did they see and understand the parable. Or we could look at this parable through the lens of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious establishment, um, who, just like the wicked tenants, plotted to murder the son. But it seems to me the crowds and the religious leaders, that's too far removed from us. So let's look at Jesus through our lens. As most of us followers of Jesus, 2,000 years later, sitting in this auditorium at Benjamin Franklin or watching um, the service online, how do we see Jesus telling this parable. In light of this parable, this Lent, where is the fruit in our lives that is rightfully due the Lord in response to all of his goodness for us? After all that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done for us, are we producing fruit for the Lord? What more could God do than he's already done for us. For how long has God been patient with us, sending us messenger after messenger, encouraging us to produce fruit for him? How are we producing fruit for the master this Lent? Romans 7.4 reminds us that we died to the law through the body of Christ, that we might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Last phrase, in order that we might bear fruit to God. And if you remember, in Jesus in John 15, verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. How are we doing in producing fruit for the Lord in our lives? The Bible talks about, talks about fruit in a number, a number of different ways. It talks about the fruit of repentance, John the Baptist talked about that. He said to the, the, to the listeners of his messages, he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then Romans 2, 4, it reads like a commentary on this parable. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? 
So where is the fruit of repentance in your life this Lent? Esau Macaulay reminds us, he says, we cannot be healed of sins we refuse to acknowledge. Lent, he writes, is about facing our failures and rediscovering that our God is rich in mercy, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then he adds at the end of that, that paragraph, he says, God doesn't have barely enough grace to forgive us. He is rich in the stuff. It overflows from his very nature. Where's the fruit of repentance in your life so that you can come anew to the amazing, overflowing grace of God? We hold on to our sins. We don't want to give them up or we don't want to admit them. And then we miss out on discovering the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that fills our souls with vitality and life and passion and energy. What sins are dulling your spiritual fervor right now? This Lent, would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you name your sins and to turn away from them anew so that you can again experience the amazing grace of God that will create a passion and a renewed energy for your spiritual life? So the Bible talks about the fruit of repentance. The Bible also talks about, obviously, the fruit of the Spirit. And there are a number of, of scriptures that have lists of the fruit of the Spirit. Probably the, the best known is Galatians chapter 5. And so the question for us here is, where are we nurturing and producing more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, and more self-control? Where are we nurturing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives this Lent? When we stop nurturing the fruit of the Spirit, it deflates our spiritual energy. It, it gets us to that point where our spiritual life is meh. When we aren't intentionally nurturing the fruit of the Spirit, we don't connect the same way with our brothers and sisters, with our community, because we're not working on love and peace and gentleness and kindness. So what can you do intentionally to produce, to, to think about how do I make more love come out of me in this setting? How do I make more kindness come out of me in this setting? What can you do to produce more of the fruit of the Spirit for the landlord this Lent? And then the third one, the last one I'll mention, the Bible talks about the fruit of good works. The fruit of good works. Colossians 1.10, Apostle Paul writes, said he wants us to live lives worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. We are called to bear fruit through our good works. And then Isaiah 58 has a great list, list of the kinds of good works that actually matter to God, because lots of times we start to think, well, my good works are I'll show up at church, or I'll, um, you know, I'll sing a worship song. But God says, here's the good works that I like, and Isaiah lists them. He says, it's things like loosen the chains of injustice, meet the needs of the oppressed, free people from their sins, share food with the hungry, provide hospitality for the lonely, buy clothes for the naked, and do away with all malice. Where is the fruit of good works in your life this Lent? Because when you are not seeking to do the good works of God, of course your spiritual life is going to be dulled along with your fervor. So, to end the, the message today, I want to leave you with just one word 
at the end of this sermon. Just one word. If you know me, you know that I came up with three, four, five, six, seven bunches of things that we can do to produce more fruit in our lives. And then I took a walk on Thursday afternoon, and I was talking to God about the message, and I sensed very clearly the Lord say, Bill, I want only one word for Cornerstone at the end of this message. And that word is prune. Not eat more prunes, but do more pruning. One word, Cornerstone. God wants us to produce fruit for him this Lent by pruning more things out of our life this Lent. In spite of everything that God did for them, the wicked tenants in the vineyard wanted to keep everything for themselves like we do. In spite of everything that God has done for us, we want to keep all of his blessings, we want to keep all of the goodness of God, and we want to hold on to our stuff, to our lesser things, to our time wasters. We want to hold on to our sins, and we want to keep all of our options open. Like them, we too want to keep it all. But the law of the vineyard is very clear. If we will not prune, we will not produce fruit. And pruning hurts a little bit. It's little deaths of things that we cut out of our lives. But if we don't prune more from our lives this Lent, it will be impossible for us to produce more for the Lord this Lent. So, what lesser things can you prune out of your life to produce more fruit for God? One of the reasons for spiritual lethargy, for inertia, for meh, one of the reasons is because we're holding on to too many lesser things in our lives. And if you're tired of being spiritually worn out, then maybe it's time to find things to prune out of your life. So I don't know what they will be for you, but um, when I invited the Spirit, and you know, when he got to that point, um, and I invited the Spirit to help me see what I can prune, the Spirit started with this. And I committed to prune out of my life random scrolling on my phone and to stop turning to my phone whenever I had a free moment or was a little bit bored. And even I committed to stop charging my phone at night next to my bed so that in the morning I would check in with God first before I would check in with my phone. I don't know what it will be for you, but every day this week, I intend to ask the Lord, what can I prune out of my life to produce more for you? And on my way, I was walking out to the car this morning um, to, to come to church, and I actually got my um, report of my screen time for the week, and it's down 33%, and I started this on Thursday. How much more space will I find for other things, better things, richer things? I was on the tee going home one, um, on Friday, and, and I said I wasn't going to pull out my phone when I got bored. Everybody else's phones were out. I kept my phone in my pocket, and I prayed for all of the people around me on the tee. I don't know what it will be for you, but I'm going to try to ask of everything that I do throughout Lent, especially this week and through Lent, does this produce good fruit for God? Or does it get in the way of producing good fruit for God? So I want to leave you 
with just one word from the message today. Prune. Let's pray. Father in heaven, many of us find ourselves this Lent drained, maybe a little bit defeated, scattered, maybe distracted, just somehow lacking something that we know that we long for. We long for our lives to be renewed. We long for our souls to be refreshed. And we know you do those things because we have experienced that before. Father, we long for a vibrant, passionate, life-giving, missional, worshipful, love-saturated spiritual life. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us rise up and be done with lesser things in response to all that you have done for us. As we sang earlier, this is our God. In response to all that you have done for us, all that you have provided for us, all that you have cared for, all that you have done for us, help us prune what is fruitless so that we can devote ourselves to what is fruitful for you. Let us not be like the wicked tenants of the vineyard, but let us be faithful children, giving to you what is right for us to give to you so that we can receive from you more of what you have for us this Lent. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.